Boom, people, welcome back to the show. So today we're gonna talk about why fund managers actually have to be really good marketers. I've spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious fund managers around. And now I've decided to take the plunge and start my own fund. The real question is, how will I do it? With no investors and without an Ivy League degree, this podcast is gonna give you the answer. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we start and build multi-million dollar investment funds. I'm Bridger Pennington, and this is Investment Fund Secrets. Boom, people, welcome back. So today's gonna be a fun episode, but first, a few updates that I wanna give you about my fun, my life. I treat this a little bit as my personal journal to give you just updates and things that are going on. So our fund is doing very well right now. In the last, since January about 10th till now, we've done more deals in the last, I would say maybe 20, 30 days than the last three months combined. So we are growing really fast. We're probably, my goal is to double our fund size in the next, I would say 60 days. We're opening up a new round of fundraising. It's very exciting. We got, I just pitched a bunch of investors last couple days and went well. We've raised more money. I'm not pitching you by the way, disclaimer, this is not a pitch at all. I'm just telling you my fund, what we're doing and what's going on, which is I'm way hyped for and excited. Also, Really fun insight, what we're doing. My dad, as you guys know, runs a $20 billion real estate empire. Started it from the ground up. And he's been on the podcast before we did an interview. And I've asked him multiple questions. We have Sunday dinner together. I'll sit down and just pick his brain about how their fund works. And what we've decided to do is we are doing a live training next Thursday. Myself and my dad are gonna come on and talk about very in-depth stuff. And the reason I didn't want to do it on the podcast format and on a webinar, because we have, we can have a whiteboard, a screen, we can have comments. You guys can actually ask questions live, a live Q and A with my dad. And we're going to walk through how he structures his funds. You know, I've, I've told you guys before the, you know, general partner, limited partnership. Well, they have 96 funds right now. How do they structure that under one roof? And they have, I think, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so general partners. How does that all work together? Special vehicles from international investors. He's going to go very in depth on how his fund is structured. We're going to walk through that. We're going to walk through different ways to steal, ethically steal investors from your competitors and how a framework for how you guys can find good deals should be pretty exciting. And then a live Q and a after I've convinced him to come on. So uh, if you're interested, go to investmentfundseekers.com. There's a little button on there. You can just click, sign up. It'll give you reminders. It's going to be live. It's February 20th. It's like next week. It's not like a pre-recorded thing. This is actually live February 20th at 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. And I am, I'm pretty excited for this. It's going to be a really fun uh, event. We want to get a lot of feedback. We want to hear your guys' questions. That's why we're doing this. And so we have a better format. To it. It's going to be a webinar. So hopefully it's around your lunch break. Grab a sandwich, sit down, and, and you can watch for an hour. It's going to be an hour and uh, should be very exciting. So, uh, so today's episode, this is going to be a fun topic. I'm excited to talk about this, about why fund managers need to be good marketers. So a few weeks ago, I flew out to Nashville, Tennessee, I flew out there. I go with my, so one of my partners that helps me run this podcast and kind of our stuff, he's a really good marketer and I just partner with him and he does all the, all the stuff you guys see. He does most of his name's Mason. Fantastic. He's like, Bridget, let's go out to Nashville. And I've told you guys a story a little bit. So we fly to Nashville and I was like, yeah, I want to educate myself. I love, you know, any investment in yourself is a good investment. I believe even if it's doesn't, you know, pertain specifically to your field of interest. I think it's just good to educate yourself about all different walks of life. And so we fly out there, we spend a good amount of money. We fly out there, we get a hotel room, we pay a thousand dollars per ticket to get in this room. And we're there for four days and we're sitting at the feet of incredible marketers. Uh, the former, um, one of the founders of quest bar, 
Tom Bill, you came, he spoke, Ryan Halliday, there's a bunch of different marketers. These guys had done every different walk of, of life of selling stuff online. It was incredible. And we sat down and then Tony Robbins, the last day comes and speak to us. And you guys know Tony, I'm a huge Tony fan. And he starts talking about pitching um, different incentives and we're gonna walk through status boosts, how to close. He was really going in depth with us. And I had this epiphany. I said, oh my gosh, fund managers are marketers. We use marketing every single day. And I don't mean marketing for, okay, you bought an apartment building and you've got to now fill the rooms. You got to do actual marketing. No, I mean marketing like you've got to go and pitch and close investors. You've got to convince business partners and other funds to put money in a deal. You've got to sell your deals to someone else. That's marketing. The whole waterfall structure that I've taught you guys in previous episodes, you know, the pref and the catch up and the carry, that's marketing. That is literally put together because it's a good pitch. It's easy to sell somebody on that. If there was a different, a better way to do it, they would do that to get incentivized investors to come into your fund. That's marketing and sales. It's everything that, that fund managers do <laughs> essentially falls in these categories. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So we're there, Tony, he, I mean, he's right in front of us. We had like really good seats. We were right there. And you know, Tony, he's like, six foot eight, just this giant, right, of a, of a person. And he starts asking, he goes, hey, who in this crowd right now owns the most expensive bag in this room? Does anybody in this in this room right now have a bag over $5,000, a handbag, like a purse? Maybe a Louis Vuitton, Gucci, whatever it is. And a couple of ladies raise their hand. He, he points them out, you know, he finds the, the, most, the most expensive bag. And the bag, I think, was worth like $7,000 this lady had bought. And he, he starts talking to her, he goes, so why'd you buy this bag? She's like, well, it's, you know, it's great. She starts showing him the bag, you know, oh, it's really, you know, it's so, such quality. He's like, no, it's not. He's like, they, they make, who's like a, who's a, who does like producing or any type of manufacturing? How much is this bag? How much is it to produce it? Like 20 bucks, maybe 30 bucks. You bought it for seven grand. Why? And she's like, well, and she starts pitching him on logical reasons, right? Well, it's a good bag. And he's like, that's bull crap. You bought it because you love the feeling of having a $7,000 bag. And she's like, yeah. And he goes, what kind of brand is it? He goes, it's a Louis Vuitton. He goes, did you buy it at a Louis Vuitton store? She said, oh, of course. What store? Oh, it was in Vegas. It was this amazing store. We walked in. He's like, exactly. Like you love that feeling, right? And didn't you feel great after you bought it? She's like, yeah, I feel incredible. He's like, how do you feel when you wear the bag? She's like, I love it. I love having my $7,000 handbag. And it's just incredible. And then he goes over to somebody else. He goes, all right, who owns the least expensive handbag in this room? This other lady raises her hand. He goes, okay, what do you got? And she pulls up this fanny pack and he goes, how much did you buy this for? And she goes, well, I bought it from, uh, from Goodwill. I think it was $2 and 50 cents. And he goes, wow. Okay. I think, I think we've got a winner, $2 and 50 cents. And uh, he goes, well, so why'd you buy it? She goes, wow, it's really functional. It's good. I got a good deal on it. He goes, wait, hold on. What'd you just say? She goes, well, I got a good deal on it. And he goes, didn't you feel, what did you, when you bought this on a good deal, did you tell people how good of a deal it was? She goes, oh yeah, I told everybody. Like, yeah, it's a great deal. I found this amazing bag. It looks awesome. And he goes, ah, look at that. You got a status boost from finding a good deal. He goes, it doesn't matter what you buy, whether, whether you're buying really expensive products or really cheap products, you still buy because of status. The status of, oh, I'm a, I'm a really good shopper. I'm smart. I'm conservative. I save money or... I have a status boost because I bought something very luxury. And I had this little aha moment. Then he uses another example. He goes, who in here owns the most expensive sports car? And somebody raised their hand like they owned a Ferrari. It's like a 48 Pista, I think anyways. 
it was like worth $500,000. He goes, why'd you buy it? Obviously, you know, the status and the boost, whatever. He goes, so after you bought it, he's like, you married? Yeah, I'm married. So what did you do when you got home to justify it to your wife? What'd you tell your wife? And he goes, well, <laughs> got home and I told her how great of a car it was and how it would be so great for our family. And, and it had good, you know, and he's like, you probably went through gas mileage and how good the tires were. Right. <laughs> we kind of are laughing, right? Cause the Ferrari is like traditionally the worst car ever to own. Just, they break down and they're just not that great. Um, but he justified it to his wife after. And then he had somebody raise their hand about a minivan, right? Who owns a minivan? Oh, you bought it because and he went through the same thing. It's convenient. It's got a lot of space. It's really good for my kids, right? They bought it for a status boost. So his point he's trying to make was everyone buys, everyone does things for a status increase. Because for some people, if you live in a certain neighborhood and you bought a Ferrari, that would be a status decrease for you. Because your friends and family are like, oh my gosh, they bought a Ferrari? Like they're such, oh my God, who would ever spend money on that? Why would they do that? Right? It's a status decrease for you. Buying a minivan would be a status increase because you're smart. You know, it gets good gas mileage. It helps the kids haul the kids around. It's a status increase of being a smart consumer. Kind of see where I'm going with this? So how does this apply to funds, Bridger? Well, it happens the same thing with investors. An investor, all their, their whole portfolio is a status boost for them in different ways. They buy a safe um, T-bill, right? Or CD or something very conservative because they want to see them. They feel like, oh, I'm a safe investor. I'm a good preserver of wealth. I'm doing very good for our family, our family's wealth. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, they have a status boost and they tell people, well, you know, I, I diversify through different T-bills and, and CDs and I want to preserve and slowly, I'm going to slow, slowly grow wealth over time. And other people who invest in alternative investments, like what we're doing, and maybe they have a piece of their portfolio that's in alternative investments, they feel like they're in the loop sometimes. They have some kind of secret information because alternative investments sometimes aren't open to everybody. It's usually word of mouth kind of basis, especially if you're doing a 506B, you can't publicly advertise, right? So it's a, it's a in the loop, hey, we're only pitching this to a certain amount of investors. They have the status boost of like, oh my gosh, I have secret information. I know more than the general public. I'm gonna get into this alternative investments. You can also do the same thing um, with the exclusivity of letting only certain individuals into your fund. Like, hey, we only take qualified purchasers in this fund. Um, like for instance, Ray Dalio's fund, you have to have, I don't, well, I don't think he's, he's take, he hasn't taken money for the last 15 years, no new investments. The minimum investment is a hundred million dollars to get into his funds before he'll even talk. You have to have a, a, a net worth of over $5 billion to even talk to Ray Dalio to get money in this fund, right? It's super exclusive. And you feel this huge status boost when you finally get accepted into their fund. Isn't it interesting how they've switched the tables? You're now pitching them to let you in the fund as the investor versus the fund manager like, oh, please, anybody put some money in. They've switched it around to say, oh, we only take certain types of investors. You know, we, we, it's very exclusive. We, we have to, we, and we only want good investors. Can you, why would you be a good investor for us? And this will be a whole different episode. I'm gonna go into how to make investors pitch you on putting money in, but it's a fun way to switch the table. So Tony goes on, he talks about this and then and this happened with him and other speakers talked about this thing, but thing called this is what I wanted to get to in this episode was a thing called the three closes. And I mentioned them earlier in this episode, but the three closes are this. Our number one is, and these are three different stages of a sale, not just not close types. I'm not saying like, oh, this is cool close strategy. I'm saying stages of a sale that happens. Number one, 95% of the time, it starts with emotion, 
right? If you ever fell in love with a deal or fell in love with some type of investment, you're just like, I'm just in love with it. I just love the idea. And it's a big emotional experience. When you're buying a Ferrari, when you're buying a Louis Vuitton bag, it's an emotional experience. Most buying is emotional, right? And we use the Ferrari's example, right? It's a super emotional thing, right? Status boost. Oh my gosh, I look so good in this car. You're investing, right? Oh my gosh, I love this deal. I just love investing in this type of area of the country. I just love it all, right? That's what happens first is the emotional close. What happens next is what they call the logical close where you now have to go to your partners, maybe your wife or your husband. Hey, I, you come home to your husband. Hey, I just bought a Ferrari. And they're like, what? <laughs> right? And they don't feel the emotion that you felt. So now you've got to close them logically. Oh, well, the Ferrari is a great purchase because of, you know, we, I got a good deal on it. You know, it was discounted. It's got good gas mileage. It's, you know, it's really efficient. It's a great car. It's going it's to look great in our driveway. You try to pitch them a little bit on the motion, but it's a lot of a logical close. Same with your partners, right? You come back to your partners. Hey, partners, this is a great deal because uh, look at the cap rate on this thing and, and X, Y, Z. And there's a lot of tie over there too. And then third, and before I dive into that, usually 30% of people, and this is actually, they were showing tons of stats to back this up. About 30% of people get closed on the emotional close, right? So just, just by emotion is enough, right? Just off the emotion of it. My dad, for instance, had an investor. He, he pitched last year. He, they sat down at a lunch. He talked him through the emotions of it. Didn't ever show him a pitch deck. Didn't show him any type of charts. Kind of gave him an average, you know, IRR. Dude wrote him a million dollar check at lunch. Said, here you go. I trust you guys. I love it. I'm really excited. Here you go. That was an emotional close. 30% of people on average are fine with just an emotional close. They're good with that. The next stage, the logical close is usually about, they they were saying about 40% of people on the logical close. So, the emotional close happens. They're like, ah, eh, you know, okay. I like the emotion of it. Now let's go to the, let's see what logically though, does this make sense? And they got to talk to their partners. They got to figure it out. And if they're partners, you know, if it's good with their partners, then yeah, 40% of people go, you know, I'll write you a check. I'll invest or I'll buy the Ferrari or I'll buy whatever it is. Right. So 30% of the emotion, about 40% logic. And then the last close is the scarcity close or the fear close of it going away of not having the opportunity anymore. You'll see this a lot with investors. You know, you've got a deal, it's got to close by the end of the month. Um, and you say, Hey, we're raising X amount of dollars. They're all emotional. Yeah, it looks great. Uh, let me talk to my partners though. Okay. Talk to their partners. Partners like, yeah, I like it. And they still haven't written you a check. And you have a deadline on the 30th of scarcity. And it's funny, they, the stats, and we, they showed us all these stats, about 30% of people get closed on the scarcity of it going away right? So they, they were kind of sold on the emotion. They were sold on logic, but because it was going to go away, they go, okay, they'll speed everything up. They, okay, let's get you a check. Let's make sure the wire sent and bam, they put their money in. If you notice a lot of fund managers open and close their fund, it's not just open-ended. Most fund managers say, Hey, you know, and we have different periods for this, you know, the next, you know, f- four weeks we're raising money for this deal, right? You can get in or get out, but in four weeks we needed to have a decision that scarcity close closes them at the end. So Actually, I, I, I interviewed a guy yesterday, Sid Cromanhook. Um, fantastic guy. He's actually going to be kind of a mentor, part of a kind of a mastermind thing we're putting together. Pretty exciting. Um, we're launching uh, next week. It's going to be pretty, pretty fun. I talked about that um, at the beginning. But Sid Cromanhook, 
They raised $70 million in 40 days, just barely, for his VC fund. And he walked me through exactly how he did it. Uh, it was incredible. And they put that scarcity, they, they gave him a ton of emotion up front. They logically sold them. And then they said, hey, it's closing in 40 days. You literally have to get your stuff together to, to invest in 40 days. And a lot of that, there was, this is their third fund they've launched. A lot of those investors were institutional investors, which usually are, are slow moving. They got them to invest in 40 days, max. Um, pretty, yeah, pretty exciting. So those are the three closes. Uh, and I'm gonna probably, this is probably gonna be a series about different marketing pieces of pitching investors, but just understand a lot of the stuff we're talking about was put into place originally because it's just good marketing and sales, right? Having a waterfall, having different stages and closes of your fund, different rounds of fundraising is all for marketing. It's either an emotional close, a logical close, or a fear close. And uh, those three closes for me have been have been super valuable and something I, I learned from Nashville. So hopefully guys, that helps you guys. Um, let me know if you uh, have any questions on Instagram, hit me up and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace, bye. Hey, wasn't that awesome? So we did something really cool for you guys. So my dad runs a $20 billion fund. I convinced him this Thursday, February 20th to come live on a live webinar to teach and talk to you guys about what he does in his fund, how they structure a $20 billion fund, how to ethically steal investors from your competitors. And third, how to actually find deals, the framework for finding deals. And then he is going to stay on live for a live Q&A. You can ask him whatever questions you want. Pretty cool, right? So if you want to get started, go to www.investmentfundsecrets.com, click on the register link, and you'll be on the webinar for next Thursday. See you guys. Peace.